trying to say that hook is a perfect film i'm just <laughs> you son of a bitch no no i'm just trying to you, you know what you were doing i'm you just trying to swinging. say i'm just trying to say that for what it is if it wasn't directed by spielberg and it was just a kid's film that didn't maybe have julia roberts in it i think people would would enjoy it more i i get the problems it's not a very good looking film compared to his other movies just uh I, I just defy you to show it to a child Bang right ring. now have it show it to a child right now and watch them fall asleep and uh how dare you it's not good it's i think you could good. say the same thing about the goonies honestly Sure, you absolutely could. <laughs> but absolutely the Goonies could. is a classic. I don't know. Okay. Anyway, all that to say, uh, hi guys. Hey. Hey. I like to talk about random shit at the top. Also, it's very Pinter-esque to just like start it off with a non sequitur, just like hook the movie. Let's go. So next episode, we should start with silence. Just ten minutes of it. Ten. But, <laughs> but also, then we're gonna go through Spielberg's filmography, and we're gonna discuss his chronology. Chronology. Uh, that's actually what we're going to be doing today, which is yeah. very exciting. Um, yeah. I, well, let's just get into it because we actually have a lot to cover because he's got a lot of work. Damn, he Quite does. Quite prolific. Ooh. If you do, um, hey, uh, something that Bailey brought up to me that we must think about mm. before this mini series is over is um, that we haven't given a voice to Pinter yet. You're right. Carol <laughs> Churchill has a very specific voice, which we all know. Carol right. Churchill sounds about like this. And we've got, we've got our. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking Michael Keaton, but that's the wrong one. Michael Caine. Michael Caine. Michael Caine. Michael Caine. Uh, we have our voice. Yeah, you, you know. To be fair, that's a rip off of the trip. But that's true. It is. But he. But, but he, it's so classic. Or, yeah, and there's you know, but it's. I watched The Prestige a couple nights ago. I've been on a Nolan kick, watching mm. some some Nolan right. movies, yeah. and he's in all of them. So I'm, I'm trying to get that <laughs> that accent down. I'll get it one day. That impression. Uh, but but Pinter does need a voice. You're correct. So I, I'm gonna lay one down. Here's my let's here's hear my it. Insert, okay. okay? Right. Hello, I'm Errol Pinter. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Errol Pinter. Hello. Hello, Errol Pinter. <laughs> Don't go that way. It's almost a little bit Never like Mike Myers way. Simon in Saturday Night Live. My name is Simon. Simon, and I, I like to do drawings. <laughs> Are you looking at my bum? Are you looking yeah. at my oh, bum? Oh, yeah. Okay, so Harold Pinter is Simon who does drawings. Um, so, yeah. And then he yeah. had Danny DeVito on that one time. He's like, you're looking at my ass. <laughs> That's funny. I remember that yeah. episode. That's really funny. Yeah. Ah, classic. I love, I love classic Mike Myers SNL sketches. He was oh, a yeah. fucking king. Like he was in a different universe. He and there's really some was. that obviously... Dana Carvey's my favorite personally. Da- but... Sure. Have you watched the Dana Carvey show? We can't get into this. We can't yep. get into uh... Because <laughs> it's fucking different crazy. Podcast. Yeah. Like, and yeah. that documentary's rad. Check that yeah. documentary out. Uh welcome to Theater Theater. <laughs> 
the theater podcast for theater nerds made by three theater makers from the L.A. theater scene. I'm Jay Bailey Bertram. I'm C.J. Merriman. And I'm Scott Leggett. And each week we get together and we discuss, debate, and disseminate the evolutions of great playwrights by taking a macro look at three of their plays. And this is part macro two. Macro means big. You're right. Thank you. Did you just look that up? Veiny. Oh, no, I know it. Veiny? It's girthy. <laughs> we take a girthy look at three of their plays. And this is part two. DJ. <laughs> All right, well, uh, <laughs> this is part two. Part two of three uh, of our miniseries covering the works of Harold Pinta. And He's really sweet. It's the birthday party. Party. Yes. The birthday party. Uh, Last week we discussed The Birthday Party, uh, a phenomenal play that I think we all really enjoyed. Yes. yes. This week we're covering The Homecoming, and then next week we're going to be covering Betrayal. Those are the three that we're taking a girthy look at. What, CJ? What? No, just three different plays. Oh, yes. Very yeah. much so. Have y'all read Betrayal job. yet? No, I, I, I haven't have. gotten to it yet. I, st- I do it tomorrow. Uh, I do it tomorrow. I can't talk about it yet, but... Good, I just right? we did a great job picking these out. Right? I gotta say, I they're gotta very say, different, and it definitely Mr. shows Pinter an evolution. Mr. Pinter has range. He <laughs> does. It shows an evolution, which is I I think we'll get into more next time. Obviously, once we've covered the third one, we can get a little bit more into like what the evolution is necessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you also see, as you'll see, and as we go through the chronology, you'll see that there's a lot of similarities in his work, where he's testing things out. He's like, ah, that didn't work, so he tries it again. Same, like the same themes, same dynamics of characters, uh, yeah. things like this. Uh, but he really hones some things, and the betrayal is like a whole other thing. It's a outlier, in my opinion, while still being Pinteresque, which is a term we should dissect at some point during this podcast. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but yeah, this week we're we're covering the homecoming. But before we do that, should we just should we just go for it? Let's just fucking go. For Let's go it. for it we're because doing, we're talking about the chronology first, the, or the, yeah. the chronology, the the chrono logy. Yes, chronology. Yeah. that's right that's one of my favorite stingers it's chronology uh we're gonna step through it so i am gonna i'm gonna run this i'm just gonna step us through every single one of them if there's something you want to say about one of them step in and say bailey i want to say something and say it okay uh if you want to make a joke crack a quip do it uh but i'm just gonna blast through these because there's like 500 Yes. Well, no, I'm not... 29. Well, okay. I'm hyperbolic. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I'm a hyperbolic chamber. Uh, let me say this. There's a lot of one acts and a lot of made for TV stuff in here. I, I list a few of them that I felt were important, but I skipped a good amount as well because there's just like so many one acts. Yeah. He, he, he writes one acts on one acts and not all of them are super, super well received and not all of them you can find very much info on. It's right? true. It's, like, it's really true. Like, there's some that you could tell he jerked it off on a weekend and, like, yeah. threw it out. Somebody did it. And then it would, I think a lot of them just, I mean, they've all been printed, but they're not easy to find. Right. And and I think you can you can find a lot of them, like, in anthologies, right? For the sure. collection and the lover and this one are all in one book kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, which are fun to find, and I have a few of those, but... Uh, He's an interesting one. He's kind of like Jane Campion. Weirdly, I've been watching a lot of Jane Campion recently yeah. because of Power of the Dog. 
and I've been going back sort of like, oh, I want to like revisit her entire filmography. And some of it's arisen uh, like out of nowhere on random streaming things because of Power of the Dog, but some of it you still just can't find. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, just, you just have to go so deep for it. Uh, in oh. the cut specifically, I can't find it anywhere. Really? I just don't know where to watch it. It's not on Google. It's not on iTunes. You may have to nowhere. buy the DVD or something. But the only there's no Blu-ray version of it. The only Blu-ray version comes in a Kevin Bacon six-movie set. Holy shit. Okay. I'm not going to buy that, first of all. <laughs> um, maybe I will. I don't know. Uh, it, it doesn't have trimmers in it, Birthday so I don't know if I want present. But, uh, but it's like movies he has like ten lines in. It's like not even like really a good bacon set. It's fine. Right. Okay. Mm, bacon. Bacon. I want some bacon. <laughs> sounds really good. Well, and then, Bailey, did you include any screenplays in here? Or are we going to say I did. I, if you have those listed, definitely list them out because they're, they're interesting. The only one I actually wanted to bring up is one that was never produced. Ooh, is it which... the, uh, the, Tim, the Tim one? Tim? What is this? The, the King Lear that he got, that uh, Tim. What? Uh, Tim Robbins um, commissioned him to do in 2000. They oh, never did shit. it. They no never. Shit. They were going to do it as a movie, so huh. it exists Whoa. somewhere. You can read it, and I'm like, I want to see that. I want to. That's read. pretty cool. Yeah, he had a few unproduced works. There's also the Proust uh, screenplay oh, right, that's like right. sort of famous for not being produced. Uh, w- w- he also tried to do Dune, and it just didn't work out. Did everybody? <laughs> Everyone can you imagine Pinter's dude? dude? <laughs> Kinda. <laughs> like, it would be really understated. We would never really know where we were, which I'm okay with. It'd be in with. a boarding house the whole time. Right, we'd be in North London for sure. Worms um, just come out of the ground. But they'd speak. Yeah. They'd have, like, non-secular lines. <laughs> oh, man. I'll just walk up and get my COVID spiders. You want some spice? You want Harold some Pinter's spice? voice. His voice that we were doing does sound a bit like the small worm from the beginning of Labyrinth. Don't go that way. If she'd have gone that way, she'd have gone right to that castle. Oh, and that's somebody somebody famous, too. I think it's Henson. I think it's Jim. Really? It may be. But I thought it was was somebody else like like a... Someone sexy. Like a John Hurt or something, but I'm I'm I'm, I'm totally wrong, and people are labyrinth fans are screaming. Yeah, that's true. Well, we've gotten far away from the the initial uh, stinger, so I mean, we should probably put it yeah. in, right? We should, do, I mean, it we again, should right? do it one more time, Scott. Yeah. You okay with that? Yeah. That's right. It's the chronology. Uh, so the screenplays. He did. He does do a lot of screenplays for his own work, which is awesome. The Caretaker, okay. Birthday Party, things like this. But the one I actually wanted to bring up that I think is is super interesting is he is one of like three or four people, including David Mamet, who wrote original scripts for the 1997 Adrian Lyne Lolita. Oh, right. Oh, no shit. Which ends up going to Shift, Stephen Schiff, or somebody like that. Like, it doesn't even end up being written by one of these, like, amazing playwrights that takes a stab at it, whatever. Uh, Albie also did a, a Lolita um, that we'll talk about when we do Albie. It's, some, it's a really interesting thing uh, because, obviously, it's usually, in fact, has always been men trying to tackle it, right? Mm, yeah. And yeah. Adrian Lyne, uh, 1997 movie is horrifying it is so backwards to what the book is trying to do it's the exact opposite it's purely sexual 
uh, and made for old men to watch and enjoy. And it's it's fucking trash. It's uh, so trashy. But I, I can imagine a Pinter version being maybe more correct, and that's why Adrian Lyne didn't make it. Because <laughs> he was like, mm, this, is, uh, this isn't misogynist. This man. makes me uncomfortable. It's a, it's a yeah. tough, <laughs> it's a tough exactly. code to crack, man, it is. that Nabokov, and that book in particular. But all of Nabokov's writing is so dense. And, I mean, like, he did the screenplay for the, the, the original Kubrick flick, and that was like right. 250 pages. He right. showed up with a 250-page script, and they're like, uh... We gotta cut this, but yeah, know. yeah, it's hey, yeah, it's. I get it. But yes, that would be amazing to read. I would love to read. It would be interesting. Pinterest that was way later, reading. though. That's in the nineties. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I bet it. I bet it exists. I mean, he wrote it, so it, it's somewhere. Uh, but so he he begins his career, his chronology, in nineteen fifty-seven. Uh, my parents are seven years old, or turned seven that year at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, what one, what one else is, is happening in fifty-seven? Uh, nuclear family is intact and doing great yeah uh we got we got we got sputnik yet white america's doing just fine yeah right has the space race started yet internationally speaking yeah cold war is certainly in full swing yeah and cold war had you know all those post-war years leave it to beaver has been on the air a few years my dad was a year away from them getting their first television he okay. had, they sat around the radio until he was like 11 and dad uh, was born in 47. What uh, year does Back to the Future, when, where does he go back to? What 55. Year? 55. You're Isn't right, because it exactly it's 85 to 55. 80, yeah, 85 you're right, you're right. So we're two years after the events of Doc Brown and the... <laughs> the events of... <laughs> the events of, of Doc, the, the famous the factual events <laughs> Lightning of Back strike to the of yeah. the clock tower. Yeah. Okay, but then we're did Pinter write Back to the Future first? Is he that what you're trying did. to tell yeah, us? Yeah, that's where I'm headed. That's where I'm headed. No, the first play he writes in 1957 is a one act uh, called The Room. Uh, it's not a full play, obviously. It's a one act, but it's very similar thematically to what he does with the birthday party. So a lot of people have sort of revisited it as like, oh, he was trying something out here. Now the Room has done a lot in rep with other things as like a second act to another of his one acts usually. Yeah, yeah. That's, I, that's where I've When I bought it. the yeah. birthday party book mm-hmm. years and years ago, it came with The Room. So I've read The Room, but it was years ago and I don't even remember it. Right, so. that makes the sense. The Room. Uh, that same year he does the birthday party. Yeah. So he's playing with stuff in his mind. You know, he's in the very same time of life. Then he writes uh, The Dumbwaiter, which is something that's done a lot. Yeah, uh, I think I don't yeah, know why. It, um, I think it comes off as a little bit lighter, sure, uh, than than the birthday party. A little more party. comedic. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a it's a one act, and it is considered to be the sort of perfect distillment of what he was trying to do with his early works. And so yes, yeah. I don't know if that has something to do with that a bit too, uh, without um, a lot of the darkness of what birthday party brought. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should slight, point out um, just yeah. real quick that he's he's in these early years he's cranking them out. Yeah, like we he's got three and fifty seven. He's got two and two 58, and fifty eight, two and fifty nine, two and sixty. Like he's just yeah doing it. Yeah, he's, never mind he's all like, the other writing that he's probably doing at the same time. Well, right. Sorry. So I'm I'm I've I I think 
by 60, he's got stuff on TV and radio all yeah, the time. Sure. Uh, by 1960, but so so then in 58 he has a couple more. He does a slight ache, uh, which concerns a married couple's dreams and desires. Uh, but it's mostly about like the husband's fears of like losing his identity and things like this. Mm. Uh, but it was first done as a radio play and then put up. Uh, it's done a lot i think this is one that i think people pick up and it's one i've i've heard uh, yes i've heard done and i've never seen it or read it yeah the next one though that same year is one i have read and i would love to be in see direct anything it's called the hot house uh this is basically it from my memory of it when i read it it's like a one flew over the cuckoo's nest but pinter uh Mm -hmm. and absurd um you don't really know the nature of this hot house that they're in the whole time. It's these right. men sort of in, and they keep saying it's either like a rest home or a sanatorium. And you're sort of like, well, which is it? Those are different things. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So it's a lot of that. Uh, it's very good. I recommend people pick it up. It's it's one of those that you can find pretty easily. I think there's a PDF. Yeah, right. It has the, the red and black design covers yeah. you know what i'm talking about yeah. that a lot of yeah. that was the have. one i yeah. saw trav and guy pico in yells ago oh, cool. in the basement of that lutheran church oh, right. that's a perfect place to put that yeah <laughs> i love that the yeah, hot house great. is awesome i recommend it to people often actually it's one that you would go this was written in 58 like it's it's very prescient and very uh very fun and a lot of great roles pinter himself played uh the the lead of people cool um, cool then in 59, this is one I've seen. I saw it at KCACTF. It was an invited production. It's The Caretaker. This is his first significant commercial success. Uh, it was made for TV as well, like right away. It wins Best Play at the Tonys in 59. Mm. Uh, and it's these two brothers and this tramp, this um, sort of homeless uh, gentleman that they bring to their flat. And it's a lot about power dynamics and social status. But when I saw it, it was like two and a half hours. And I would say 45 minutes of it had dialogue. Right. Like it was drawn out. And like not just pauses, but just like long stretches of of action with no talking. But you just got it. And I, we we were all, all in awe of these three actors, we could not believe they were in college. We were right, like, right. it was like truly incredible. And I'm sure they, they might've been grad students or something, but still it was like breathtaking work. And the, 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 the dialect work was fucking insane. Uh, it's really good. I recommend it to people all the time, but the original production and subsequently the made for TV film uh, had Alan Bates and one of my favorite actors of all time, Donald Pleasance. Nice. Yeah, <laughs> they both did a lot. They both did a lot of yeah. Pinter over the years. Their names yeah. keep popping up. Yeah. Bates especially is in a bunch of his stuff. Donald Pleasance, I mean, he's he's running the scene in the 60s. I, he's all over the place. A yeah, bunch of yeah. my childhood favorite movies. I mean, he's obviously um, Blofeld. He's in Back to the and... Future. Who? Who is he in Back to the Future? He's the, the principal dude. That is not Donald Pleasance. Yeah, right? 
No, no I'm wrong. absolutely not. I'm wrong. No, you're wrong. It's okay, but it's 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 fine. <laughs> Donald Pleasance is in Escape from Witch Mountain. Escape to Witch Mountain. Excuse me. Uh, he's in the Halloween movies all the way up to like the sixth one or some shit. He's in like a weird amount of them. Uh, we love Donald Pleasance. He's in Escape uh, from New York. He looks like oh, he's, he's the original. Oh, yeah. He's the president. Yeah. He's the president. That's right. Oh, he's, you're right. He's the one. Carpenter that, got him because he had worked. Yeah, they yeah, already worked together. Right. Oh, yeah. Escape from New York. New York is awesome. It's a rad flick. Escape from LA is not. No, no, not so much. But no, but no. New York is is good times. Good uh, any takes on the Escape franchise, CJ? <laughs> I, I don't know it that well. Okay, we're gonna watch it. I'm looking um, at his, his. We're gonna do an insta career. <laughs> Pleasance is the shit. Uh, he passed away, uh, I think, in the late '80s, early '90s. But he he's like a big childhood thing for me. I mean, he's obviously like a bond, one of the biggest blonde Bond villains. I, of all yeah, time. I said it looks like he was the uh, original Doctor Evil before, before yes. it was Austin Powers. Uh, <laughs> Technically, he died in '95. Yes, '95, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Wow, sad. Uh, anyway, so then he does in '59. Also, he does a night out. Which is uh, this man with a suffocating mother is falsely accused of groping a woman at an office party. <laughs> and then he, when he leaves, he ends up meeting this other woman on the street and he goes home with her and then like angrily berates her the whole night. And I take it, but just based on the idea, I take it sort of as like a take on fragile masculinity oh, and yeah. things like this. But I also wonder if it's. If I'm going to read it and be like, oh, this is a little misogynistic. But I don't know. Because I, I just don't know. I haven't read any of Pinter's work. I'm excited where I've to been talk like, about Homecoming. He's a feminist. Yeah, I just don't know yet. Um, yeah. But Vivian Merchant is in this. And I think this is the first thing she's in of his, which is his first wife. Yes. Oh. She's, in, she's in, she in a lot of his stuff. And she was the original Ruth in The Homecoming. Yeah. So we'll get into that as well. Uh, then he does the next year Night School. He just did Night a Night Out. But then he does Night School, which is a TV play uh, that gets put up. Then in 1960, he does The Dwarfs, which there is little info on, but it wasn't actually published until 92. Oh, uh, a couple theaters had put it up, basically like asked for the rights, but they, there was no publish. So there was no rights. He would just like give permission, but it was done. It was published in 92 and has been put up. I guess a couple times. Uh, ninety, uh, excuse me, sixty-one. He does the collection. Now this is a play I l- love. Uh, I've seen the movie has uh, Olivier Lawrence Olivier, Helen Mirren, oh, Malcolm yeah. McDowell, and Alan Bates, and it is Jesus. awesome. It's stacked and it's great. Uh, I've seen the play. I've I've done. I did a scene from it. There's this really large scene where it's this. It's comedy of menace thing where. Uh, a man is hanging out in his flat in his kind of nice flat. And then someone else bangs on the door and he goes and answers it. And it's, it's this guy whose language is a little bit, he's, he seems a little bit lower status and he kind of comes in and there's just all these non sequiturs. You don't really know what's going on. And they're just talking about random stuff. And then he starts asking like, I knew that you were at this place the other night. And he's like, Oh, what, what place? And he's like, it explains the whole story. And then by the end of it, he drops this line of like, I know because that was my wife that you were with. And you're like, Ooh. oh, shit. And then the guy's the very next line is like, so what? And you're like, oh, fuck. And that's like the end of the scene. And then they so make it's like, out. And then they fuck. So <laughs> I I think everyone should check out this play. It's usually put in, I think it's a one act, actually. It's it's But it's it's 
stretched out for the movie, but it, I think it is usually in with The Lover, which is mm-hmm. the next play that comes out uh, in 1962, which is a one act. And it's interesting because the, the, it's a very sexual play. It's sort of his like extreme sexuality play. And apparently it has been produced as both a super realistic drama and a completely overdone camp show both to extreme success yeah that's cool both to extreme success is what makes that really fun is like it works either way like like where you can like yeah it's that he's i think he does that i think he's got that ability where there's so much ambiguity and i'll talk about it more with the homecoming but can you imagine like someone though doing like bring it on extremely seriously You know, bring it on Let's the musical. It. Let's do it. And um, then, like, I don't know yeah. what you're talking about, as far as you know, as I know that. Well, we talked no about such thing. We talked <laughs> about bring no it on the musical, thing. and it, we were all like, if this was played for pure camp, it actually could be fun. But that's right. not how it's done. No. Right. But th- my thought in that, in bringing it up, is sort of like, well, what if there's a way to do it either hyper real or extreme camp? Like, I don't know. That would be fun. Also, Diana the musical. Also, Showgirls. <laughs> uh, <laughs> In 1964, he does Tea Party, a play that often isn't put up, but was made for TV, so it has like a little bit of a legacy. But I don't think it was made for TV first, and then it became a play. So I don't, I don't really know if people put it up often. The Homecoming, 1964, which we'll discuss in depth uh, today. Yes. Then in '66, so in between that, he does a bunch of like little one acts and short plays and things pop up. But then in '66, he does. The Basement, which started as a TV movie that was commissioned, and then he liked it so much that he adapted it for the stage. Hmm. Then in 67... Oh, hit my mic. In 67, (laughs) he does Landscape, which was a one-act radio play about miscommunication in marriage, in a a marriage, which is exciting. Uh, I I actually kind of want to read it, but it was... Uh, put it was also made into a stage play. Silence in 1968 is a short play, but it was commissioned and first re- performed at Royal Shakespeare. Oh, all right. So that was sort of a big deal, I guess. That was his first like major notice from a major company like that. They're, they're hmm. starting to they're starting to take him seriously. Right, <laughs> this exactly. might be something. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, and that the next year he also at uh, two years later, excuse me, at ni- 1970, also at RSC. Um, he writes this one act called Old Times, and this is considered one of his more haunting, in fact, yeah. most haunting and unnerving plays. Right. Mm. I vaguely remember it, like, uh, reading it when I did Pinter back in the day, and yeah, it's not, it, it seems a little out of place in terms of his canon, especially the lead up to it. Right. But yeah. Yeah, it's it's supposed to be not for the faint of heart, right? It, you know, pretty intense. I don't know uh, too much about it, but uh, then in '72, so it's like every couple years now, he's t- he's he's slowing down a bit here. 1972, he does a one-man TV movie for BBC that's just one man talking to a chair called monologue called Clint Eastwood (laughs) hey I'd watch the fuck out of that Uh, but then in 74 so another two years goes by he does no man's land this is a big one so um, this wins the drama desk oh wow uh, and was considered by a lot of critics to be his 
ultimate work. Like, this was it. He had done it. Pinter has finally proven all the things that the... The proven all the critics from long ago wrong who said he was nothing, you know, because Birthday Party didn't get a lot of love. There were people uh, that liked it, but the a, major critics were like, fuck no. They're, in fact, people went as far as to call it imbecilic. People were hmm. like, this is bullshit theater. Right. Like, but really, he was starting a new movement. People just didn't really get it. Right. While using the old movement, right? He's like using the Becca Ionesco movement to create a new movement in British theater, in English theater. It's all very interesting. We've talked yeah. about it before. Uh, but this this play is, is supposed to be No Man's Land. It's supposed to be sort of about the two sides of Pinter uh, and his fear of being well-regarded as an artist and therefore becoming part of everything that he sort of stands against because he's well-regarded mm -hmm. as an artist, right? And I think that's an interesting ta uh, 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 th theme for a play. I'd love to read it. Right. And we're also in sort of his middle phase is defined by not him. <laughs> yeah, the right. early the early ones are the those comedy of, of of menace shows that go from you know what 57 till roughly 68 to 70 and then you get into the memory plays which are like 68 to the early 80s and um and that's right no man's land's like right in the heart of that. Exactly. Then you have 4 years later so he, he lives off of the success of No Man's Land for a little while, and then he does Betrayal, 1978, which we will discuss next week. But, CJ, you read it without giving anything away. Did you like it? I did like it. I, I was surprised okay. by it. Yes, I really like it, but I think a lot of people don't because it's not very Pinter-esque. Right. Right? In terms of his other work. But who's to say, right? Yeah. And, and and its conceit is very cool and interesting once you figure it out. Um, did you know? Did you know going in? Like, did you read anything going in about what it was going to do? Okay. Cool. No, I didn't want to. I I just love that. Yeah, I no, I didn't know much about it at all. We'll get into it next week. Yeah, but then yeah, yeah. he does a slew of radio plays and one acts for the next six years. He doesn't produce another major play. He does a bunch of radio plays, one acts, things like this. Then in 84, he does one called One for the Road, which I had heard of before, and I was trying to remember why. And then I looked it up, and I realized there are two plays called One for the Road. There's another one by... Uh, Woodley or somebody like I don't remember mm -hmm. who it is but and so I think that's actually where I knew it from but then I started researching and I was like oh no I I have heard of this one because it's like his super overtly political play yeah that's where and it, that's where he goes he gets yeah real... and it's a one act but it's apparently like really intense and really on the nose and there's a lot of sexual assault and Dude. it's like I don't know that I, want, I don't know if I want to read that play yeah uh but Especially because if it's if it's just on the nose and I don't you know I'll probably get it two minutes in and go okay great. Uh, <laughs> four years again later he does Mountain Language another one act um, that is done a lot um, but I don't know anything about it's also hard to find info on that one and he does and some more one acts and some more one acts and then 1993 he does Moonlight. Another one that not a lot of info on the, on the web for. I couldn't find anything about this, uh, except that Ian Holm was in the original production. Mm. It went to New York. Uh, the only name I recognized, it was New York at Roundabout. The only uh, name I recognized was Blythe Danner. <laughs> um, and so that was, you know, I was like, I don't know any of these other names. But so it had a little run, I guess, at Roundabout, which is cool. 
but then the the only other thing after that, because he dies in ninety five, right? He died in two thousand eight, I thought. Oh, is that right? Who did yeah. we say died in ninety five? That was your actor. Donald Pleasant. So, yeah. but he doesn't he doesn't write any other plays until he dies, except for there was a one act play that was double billed with the room that he wrote, but it was this screenplay that he knew was never going to be produced basically. And so he turned it into a one act instead. So it's, Oh wait, I'm thinking of two different things. Celebration is the double build thing with the room that was made into a TV movie. Then in 2000, right after that, he does remembrance of things past. This was a stage adaptation of a movie he knew he wasn't going to get made called hmm. the 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 Proust screenplay. Oh, right, right, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, the Proust screenplay, I don't know a whole lot about, except that it is about... What's the dude's first name? Proust. It's about fucking... Uh, the, the philosopher. Yeah, you know what I'm talking <laughs> yeah. about. Uh, uh, but it's... It's kind of sad that this is the end of the story, right? Like what the last thing we're covering is betrayal, which is in 78. He dies in 2008. Right? So there's this interesting thing where Marcel Marcel from, Proust. Marcel, that's it. Sorry. Right. Sorry. Uh, no, thank you. That would have bothered me for the next nine nine years. Uh, fa- I never would have Google it. Um, family, <laughs> family Voices in 1980 is a is a I think TV or one act radio play, something like that in 1980, which is right after Betrayal, and everything after that basically has negative reviews surrounding it or at least some sort of like yeah i guess this is a play i don't know almost like tennessee yeah, williams yeah so the kinda... end of pinter does feel a bit like betrayal which is interesting i think yeah and I, there was an article that came out a couple of years ago um oh maybe it was like the 10th anniversary of his death or something like 2018 where they yeah. just talked about now people are going back and relooking at the, those later years you know they may have been too dense and, uh, you know, out of their time, I guess, may be the best way to describe it. Like, right. Um, whereas the early stuff is all like trying to is well wedged inside of its its own time and trying to blow it up. You know? Yeah. Um, hmm. Something I forgot sense. to say about old times, which was the haunting piece that RSC yeah, had I wrote that one down. commissioned. Yeah, that's one I want to read, too. It won Best Play in 70. Huh. At, at the, the Tonys, Tony's. Wow. yeah, yeah. I totally forgot to, to mention that because the the basically the the awards he gets are in '62 he gets best play for Caretaker at the Tonys. Nope, I'm sorry, it was nominated. It did not win. The Caretaker did not win. Homecoming Six, won, right? '67 Homecoming wins best play. '72 Old Times nominated does not win. Sorry, it does not win. I was reading the wrong thing, but it do, it is nominated in 72, 72, which is two years after he wrote it, interestingly enough. Uh, and then he wins the Drama Desk for No Man's Land, but it wins Outstanding New Play Foreign 
because it mm. was hmm. uh, he's from England. it sounds like he wrote a lot of stuff that made people feel like think about themselves too hard and maybe make them feel uncomfortable and i think that's very true there's yeah. a ton of value in that especially looking back at it now and looking at the things that people are wanting to create and produce now um but yeah i could that might be why well here's a question for you and maybe we'll have a better answer to this next in fact I'm just going to ask it. Let's not answer it right now because I think this will change after we read and discuss Betrayal. What does Pinter-esque mean? Because I think a lot of people right away say, pauses, lots of pausing. It's like, mm. well, okay. He doesn't always do that, but okay. Uh, and then it's like, identities, you know, weird identity stuff. Okay, that's not always there, though. You know, and like, but you're right in some ways, CJ, like, Discomfort is a huge piece of every one of these puzzles, even betrayal, but in a different way mm -hmm. for the viewer. I mm -hmm. mean, if you even want to go into pauses, pauses make people feel uncomfortable. 100%. A lot of the times. I mean, even just in everyday life. <laughs> yeah. And, we, and you know, and it's, it's, it's important to point out that the, the big deal of that at the time was that that literally ran counter to everything you could, I, you could tell it because he, he, when he, he buzzed out of the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts when he was a student, he couldn't take it anymore. That was one of the things that was just imposed on them. And it's like when you look at, um, you know, Judy Dench has her, her famous, uh, her list of things to do for every show that she keeps taped up in the thing. And one, right. one of them is earn the pauses, earn the pauses, earn the pauses. Mm -hmm. And so she's from that era where, you know, you weren't supposed to do the pauses. So that's where I think it starts. But I I, I feel like you're both absolutely right. Like it, it, there's an evolution to the phrase. The phrase means different things depending on what period of his work you're looking at and um, and how you look at the whole canon. It right. Means, I think it's, it's a shifting thing. But it's like, you know, we're, I'm starting to hear the phrase Sorkin-esque. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> I just got an evaluation on a script from the blacklist that called my script Sorkin-esque, and I didn't know. At first, I was like, that's the best compliment I've ever gotten, ever. And then I thought about it a little more. And I was like, are they saying it's pretentious? Are they saying it? Because I started wondering, like, what does that mean? Does that mean it's quippy? Does that mean it's pretentious? Does that mean it's fast? Does that mean it? You know, like, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Because I love I've his dialogue. Some people it... don't. Yeah, no, I, it's because he he packs extra words in in, yeah. a, in a way that it makes it just a little bit heightened, a little bit yeah. Sorkin-esque. Yeah. Creates it, it creates his own little world with it. Agreed. World with it. Uh, well, let's get into our play we're covering this week because it's interesting. There's a lot to say here. Uh, Whose choice was this one? Was it Scott's? I think it was technically mine. We kind of, I think we were all on the slack, you know, running through ones. And this is one that I, I, what? You want to introduce this bitch? Introduce this bitch. This bitch. And so, yeah, it's one that I had read back in the day, college, and it was like, what the fuck? What the fuck is going on? Yeah. Um, And so wanting to revisit it, you know, uh, as one of my my choices, and uh, oof, oof, I'm glad I did. It's an interesting one. Hey, Siege. Yeah. I hate to hate to ask you to do this. I know it's a lot. You need to stop pushing her. I know, Scott. But today, it's important. 
Look, she's laughing maniacally. I know. She knows what she's, she knows. She's, what she's it's already do. happening. It's, it's just it's waiting for my moment. Uh-huh. It's starting. <laughs> it's the. CJ's Breakdown. Teddy, an American university professor, returns to his massively fucked up childhood home in London with his wife, Ruth. They are welcomed by a total sausage party. His rage-filled father, Max, his most certainly serial killer brother, Lenny, (laughs) Joey, the aspiring boxer, and his uncle, Sam. Ruth's presence gets everyone super worked up. You got it in one. You got it in one. Yeah. (laughs) Um... Uh, one thing I have to call out because I know we said I couldn't remember which play you said it was. Ian Holm was the original Lenny. Lenny in this, which he must have been. He's also in the thirties. Yeah. Oh, really? And And, he's great uh, in the movie. I want to say because I keep harping on this, it reminded me um of his performance in From Hell. (laughs) (laughs) You're not wrong. And you know what? It also reminds me of though is. Him as the android, spoiler alert, in Alien. Yeah. Mm, We didn't bring that up the other day when we were talking about Ian Holm with Maddening of King George. I'm kind of mad we didn't because it is one of the roles that I I think really solidifies him as one of our best villains. Mm Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, and we don't think of him that way because he's Bilbo, right? It's like, no, he's Bilbo. But even the moments where Bilbo, like, reaches for the ring and his face turns all scary. Oh, man. He's got it. He can. Oh, it's scary. (laughs) And he's got. And it's and and, and, But he's. But he also has this funny thing about him. And I think what Aliens did is. Or Alien. It made him uh, recognizable as a movie thing. Because not soon after that, he does. Chariots of Fire, which is right. one of my favorite Ian Holm performances ever. Yeah, yeah, um, no, it's a good yeah, one. I, I quote Chariots fantastic. of Fire all the time, and so yeah, and but it also, uh, as I opened up the play to read it again, I saw his name on there, and I was like, oh, it helped. It really helped me balance. Yeah, um, what I was about to read, I'm like, okay. Mid sixties, Ian home, young dude. Like, uh, okay, this will give me this will this will help me set the tone as I read this. And I've also seen this first scene between Max and Lenny in scene studies a lot. Yeah, it's yeah. an easy one to pick up because it's 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 short enough, but there's a lot there. It's and oh it ends God. up. It's loaded from every line is loaded from yeah. line from, fucking one from yeah. line how one in birthday party. Things are a little bit more subtle, and maybe even yeah. like hinted at even the scarier, more "quote unquote" wrong stuff. Or there, there's like a this stasis is just in from right. the beginning. It, the birthday party gives us a stasis at the beginning that gets broken up by the two men arriving. Right, mm-hmm. this one right away we're in some shit. We're like, what? I was a page in, and I was like, whoa, yeah, yeah, yeah. oh yeah. It's 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 ugly. It's funny, and it's it's weird, and it's fucked up, and and it builds like I was. I kind of got I I I'd kind of gotten about halfway through the first act, and then I backed up and started again to track the arc, and like when 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 Ruth and Teddy come in, and how it builds, and then like it it is an arc. It is a dramatic arc. Yeah. But it's so visceral as it keeps rolling along, that and. I mean, isn't that the one of the most miraculous things that a, a playwright or a world builder can do is make you 
not know what world you're in. You're no, never exactly. on terra firma. Like you yeah. keep, you said it about the birthday party, CJ, that you were kept waiting for something awful to happen. Right. And you just, you keep waiting and the awfulness then comes and it sort of slaps you in the face because sometimes it's just a line. Sometimes it's just max, just, you know, a line. I or felt like I was sick. Yeah. I felt you know? like I was reading a household in the middle of hell in this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It and does I think feel that's a bit the like point. That. I think that's really the point. I think he's like, well, we'll talk more about what we all think about what it all means, but right. It's, um, and what great fucking characters all the way around, like all the way around, like true, you know, especially when you're dealing with, if we're talking about masculinity, right. And you have these different kind of levels of men and, this ongoing power struggle between Max and Lenny because they're the more dominant men, I guess, in a way, uh, yeah. comparatively. Mm-hmm. They're uh, trying to then, be alpha. Yeah, but then even seeing how they all compare to Teddy and then how Teddy get is is then in their position at the end of the play, spoiler alert, right, with a full f- flip of of sort of the loss of something important in his life, which we'll, we'll, we'll get into. Um, the, like CJ said, it's about... Uh, a guy bringing his wife home to meet his family who they've it's never met. It's about a homecoming. It's a homecoming. <laughs> now, well, let's talk about the title real quick because that's interesting. The title has a lot of significance because they are literally coming home. It's a homecoming. Um, a lot of people pose that there's this metaphorical side to that as well, that it's like Ruth home. Well, obviously the end of the play is Ruth is home and, and Teddy is not, right? We, we'll get there. But there's a metaphorical sort of like Ruth finding her roots, finding who she really is, finding who she really wants to be kind of thing. And I'm like, I, that's not what I read when I read the play. But that's maybe that's what, what, what it either. is. To me, that's kind of saying like, see, women are whores, everybody. Right. <laughs> like, that's that's why. kind of what so, that's saying to me. <laughs> so before we get too deep into it, that's my question is like, is this, I don't know. What is this trying to say about femininity? Is it at all? Is it just about masculinity? She's the most confusing character to me in this entire play. I don't think for me, I don't, I don't, I, I, I don't think so. I don't think he's thinking in feminist terms. I think he's thinking in humanist terms. And so what he's trying, I think what he's trying to do is show, uh, the imbalance power power is a huge thing in this move in this play and so as it gets switched back and forth and how she ends ends up well for for all intents and purposes she's the one that dictate, dictates the terms right so she ends up assuming a power right um he's obviously making uh comments about about masculinity but i think that what he's really subverting is the the idea of family values um and i don't think that he uh, believes in them or believes that they're real the thing is though is i she she says she dictates her terms and it seems like she does but i got out of that play thinking like there's no way there's no way they're going to give her what she wants as soon as teddy's gone and she's in their clutches they're going to treat her however the fuck they want to treat her i i i I don't know i don't know i I don't know about that i I agree with you in reality yeah but in this play we're we're out of reality yeah but in this play in a non-logical sort of absurd world what i kept thinking was wendy and the lost boys right the whole thing about wendy and the lost boys 
to bring back Hook is that <laughs> when Maggie Smith went to We're done, we're out of here. We're okay, okay, out. Okay, he's gone. He's ripping up the paper. Uh no, so but I did keep thinking about this because the whole thing about the Lost Boys is that they don't have a mom. They just want a mom. They just really want a mom. And they keep talking they just want somebody and there's obviously the outdated shit about gender roles and things where it's like, I just want somebody to like cook for me and, and tell me stories. And it's like, okay, well, you don't need a mom for that. But, but sure. But she do in foreplay with one of the guys upstairs for two hours. Okay, yes. But so <laughs> but now to take it away from Wendy. Now? No, but hold on. To, to take it away from Wendy and the Lost Boys to sexualize it, it's, it's loss of wife, loss of mother of mother loss of girlfriend loss of sister loss of whore loss of like it is it's it in a lot of ways this play kind of becomes about that to the almost so much so that there is a missing wall described by pinter uh, in the set there is a missing wall oh, that should just out. be black right and just it's described as pinter as removed but Teddy brings it up as he says it was knocked down to make an open living area after Jesse, his mother, died. And, and this see, is a, it still stands up. It's still structurally sound. That's what right. he says. He's justifying He's saying, it in look, some way. The five men are fine. We don't need a female influence to be okay. And what the play is sort of posing is like these men just really actually just want an in, a female influence in the fucked up ways and in the not so fucked up ways, but it's all fucked up because of the way that they're handling it. Right. I think that's an interesting play. I didn't fully, I don't know. I think this play is saying it's fucking hard to be a woman y'all. Sure. (laughs) Sure. 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 You have to be everything all at once. Yeah. To these guys anyway. Right. And it it may not matter that it, you know, it, I, because we go to because we you were talking about the scene where he's upstairs and they're they're doing foreplay for two hours, but that's not what they're doing. At least that's not what I read. Oh, they were he she, she was holding him. She was being he was being, being mothered mom. because yeah. at the end Joey walks over to her and puts his head in her lap, and she just holds him. But they like I, made she, out and rolled all over the yeah, floor. Yeah, and scene he before. does say like she wouldn't go whole hog. She wouldn't yeah, let me do they it. kept talking about whole hogs. But what does that, that mean? He doesn't Joey say does. that. The others do. Joey doesn't. Joey's like, no, oh. we're just up there. No, we didn't oh. do the whole hog. But I think that there is something else going on. I think it probably depends who's directing it and who's but performing. Also, agreed. <laughs> I was about to say, does it matter? Like, yeah. I don't know that that's the point, right? I mean, but I can tell you what I think's more fucked up. But agreed. And you know, we talk about you talk about humanism, uh, Scott, but like you know, and feminism, and and whether this play is doing either. And I agree. I don't know that it has a take necessarily that's feminist in terms of our terms of feminism today. However. It's obviously about gender and sexuality and Mm -hmm. feminine versus masculine. Like, it's very much about that. I mean, Mm -hmm. when the brothers first get together, there's all the, you're a homosexual shit and, like, all the whatever. But then, and, like, kind of weird gender discussion. They're so mean to each other. But, yeah, they're awful to each other. But then he even, at one point, like, is it Max or Sam, I want to say? Like, or... 
I think it's Sam's Max. Sam's the nice one. Yeah, he's no, Uncle and, Sam. He's yeah. Uncle Sam. Uh, yeah. And then at one point, Max is even like, I gave birth to my three sons. And you're like, for somebody who has like weird gender hangups, it's weird to be like, I gave birth to you. You know, like things yeah. like this are, uh, are just. And I think that that's about power, though, and about yeah. a craving for power that he can't have. I brought you into this world. I can take you out type yeah. of thing. Yeah, that kind of thing. So, but it all goes back to this I, this word ambiguity that applies to Pinter's work and especially applies here. Like this is like this is a, a puzzle within a puzzle. And all you can do as a as a theater maker, whether you're directing or acting in this is is go balls out. You have yeah. to sort of choose. a Well, I don't know if it's that easy, but. I think you have to make bold choices all the way through. And I think yeah. it, you really have to get a cast together and really, this is a table work play. <laughs> Do you know what Agreed. I mean? Mm. Like you're not putting this up without doing a week of sitting around every day, talking through this real clear. I agree. I also thought a lot about buried child while reading this. <laughs> uh... <laughs> Yes. Which I know we because it's up another with other... subversion. It's a subversion yeah. of the American dream, the American sure. family. One hundred percent. I think sub buried child in a lot of ways. I'm starting to realize is Shepard playing with the things that he loved about the homecoming and Ionesco and all these other. I yeah, mean, you like... know that Shepard was sitting there. I I wonder if he ever wrote or talked about it. Like. Sure that he, he when he got into Pinter going, what the fuck are you doing, man? Very, what are you I doing, mean, man? Yeah, Barry Child <laughs> has a lot of debt to the homecoming, I would argue. It's just like a lot of similarities, especially, I mean, the son coming home with the with the girlfriend kind of stuff. Like, very interesting. Um, the horrible so, father. Right. The horrible uh, father. And patriarchy, like all these things. <clears throat> the, 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 the interesting part, you know, so you have Teddy and Ruth show up. They've been married for six years. They have three kids, and nobody knows that Ruth really even exists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, I mean, even when he first, when Max, the father, first sees her, he thinks she's a sex worker, a prostitute, right? He's like, mm-hmm. how dare you bring this woman of ill repute into my home, you know? Um, and, but then the second they get there, you can tell they're uncomfortable with each other. Mm-hmm. Teddy yeah. and Teddy and Ruth, and then right away she's making out with Lenny or having some sort of like sexual encounter. I love that scene with Lenny where he's the one like he tells that super creepy story about what he did to that sex uh-huh. worker, right. how yeah. he was gonna kill her, and then he didn't. And she's just kind of standing there the whole time listening to him. And I'm like, that was when I don't know the whole first scene. I was like, what the fuck is this? But by the time that was happening, I was like, what the hell? is yeah. going on and then at the end of the scene how she takes his hand and is like what do you want me to be and i'm like girl yeah. i just i thought that was pretty interesting like well, i was like that is a woman trying to survive in the moment sure <laughs> yeah and and then she has the moment where she where, where she calls him leonard and he's like only my and, and yeah. he snaps and only my mother called me that like mm-hmm. so you have all this sort of freudian oedipal shit oh, yeah. going on and and yeah, you know, it's the Madonna and the whore aspect that that he's he's messing with. He's playing with these ideas and yeah, and especially to make Teddy this total cuck, right? The whole time he's like, he's just like cuck. getting he's yeah. getting cucked the whole. Oh, movie. I love that movie. <laughs> he's getting cuckolded the entire the movie, the entire play, and it's and one of my favorite moments. Uh, described by Pinter is the beginning of act two 
they're all smoking cigars. They have this ritual where they smoke cigars and they light each other's cigars out on the patio or whatever it is, right? And cigars, obviously, always, the second I see a cigar, I go, phallic imagery, right. metaphor, yeah. right? Like, right away. So when they're all, like, lighting each other's dicks on fire and smoking, <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, yeah, I know what this is about. And then when Teddy's goes out, prematurely i go uh-huh. oh wow, he's a yeah. real cuck huh right. right like like it's it's wants us to feel that way about him in some ways and so right. then, but then the end is just even more tragic which i guess we should talk about uh somebody want to describe the end you want me to describe it it's really it's, sad. yeah i mean it's, <laughs> it's it, it, it is it's basically them wanting to turn her into a money-making prostitute the the brothers all the brothers and father and uh, so she can pay her rent so she could then stay at the house and cook and be there for them in whatever their needs, quote, end quote, might be. And she chooses to do it like she she condition, you know, she she lays down the contract and what the deal is, you know, um, but it's and, and then leaves her husband or her husband leaves to go back to their children while she. Yeah, theoretically it's like stays. The, the they they've swapped conditions right the beginning of the play the the four men uh have no female influence and teddy does and actually has what seemingly is like an okay life with a you know a, uh, his kids back in america and things like this then she leaves him and now he's in the position that they were in he has to mm-hmm. go home and raise three boys mm-hmm. you know and it's just like I don't know. That hit me. It, it, it like, really it, hit it me. Is. I really it's, thought it's about the, that. A it's lot. the back and forth of the extremes too. Like the, just the craziness that just the, the out of nowhere violence where like Max punches would punch what Joey, he punches Joey in the, in the gut yeah. and then he collapses and then he hits his Sam in the head with the, his with walking his stick. Yeah. And then, and then, but then you're, you're back into these, these moments where, you know, they're talking about their past. They're talking about, you know, growing up and, you know, the holidays. And, well, and, and all but, of their pasts are completely haunted by the other woman that used to be in their life. It's their all mom. about yeah. the mom and Jessie, the wife. Right. And yeah, will, you, go ahead, Siege. I just wanted to say Teddy, minus the weird relationship switch up at the end, there is something that I'm sure the both of you can identify with as well. The feeling of being homecoming. Yeah, being a cuck. You yeah. guys know that, right? I um, know exactly no. what that's like. <laughs> No, being being the sibling that left, that got out of mm-hmm. the small town, that got out of this turbulent home life, and he hasn't been home for six years. Like, the conversations yeah. I've had with people out here in L.A. that's like, I haven't been home in eight years, and I'm going home for the first time, right. and I'm dreading it. Yeah. So, like, I identified with that quite a bit. Well, and, like, you know, not everything is logical in these Pinter plays. This one is maybe a little more logical than Birthday Party. There's, like, we know more, at least. Like solidified yeah. fact at least it feels like i mean there There's are some more things, character background in it yeah that feel a little bit more like no this is true it's not just something they're saying um but yeah that specifically what were you just talking about cj i'm sorry because i had just, a point based on just that. the whole outsider whether you're in the town or an outsider in your own family oh, yeah. going but, away and having a life for yourself right but them specifically saying six years that he hasn't been back yeah tells you a lot yeah. In a logical world that tells you so much. It's just like they don't know that he has they've never met his wife. 
They didn't know he was married. They didn't know he was married. They've never met his kids. They don't know he has kids. They don't know where he's been. They don't even know he's been in America. Mm-hmm. Right. And then so their reaction like... to it, like all of their individual reactions to it was like, you know, like Lenny comes in and sees Teddy and he's like, oh, hey, Teddy. You know, and Max is like, years, oh, yeah, do you yeah. think do you think you're do you think the grandkids would like a picture of me? Like all that kind of stuff where you're just like, yeah, what do you where what? And yeah. I, you know, again, so I think touch. we go back to that sort of the absurdity of some of those things uh, for Pinter, the absurdity yeah. of those structures and what we hold on to when it's not healthy, it's not good. And it's it's also not the truth. Like all of these people are pretending. They're yeah. all pretending. They all have, you know, and that goes into another like this theme of like there's time passing and memory that the research you know, re- revolves and comes around in all of, of Pinter's work. But in this one, it's like, you know, uh, like even Ruth talking about her past where she's like, oh yeah, I was, I was a model. I was, you know, a, a photographic body model once, but she kind of was like, oh, had forgotten it and had come back to it. And it's, mm. it's interesting how they all kind of react to stuff. And then there's, I wanted to point out like one of the most interesting things. And one of the things I glommed onto when we were doing the research and talking about uh, Scottopedia last week and, you know, him and and his atheism and all that. And you have this scene where Lenny, if you notice, so, uh, um, so Teddy is a professor or doctor of philosophy, but he avoids answering any philosophical questions almost at all. And so at one point, Lenny's like, isn't it wrong to, to worship something that you can't see or, or understand? Mm. Isn't that a moral, morally wrong? And, and Teddy can't answer it. And it's this question that, he, that Lenny launches out of nowhere. He's a pimp for, all, yeah. for what we know and violent and fucked up and sociopathic. And he asks one of the most critical moral questions of the play that kind of haunts its way through it's it's really it's so dense and like when you going through wikipedia and just reading about you know ben brantley from the new york times and and john lar and all these great theater critics and drama critics they're all kind of in different places in terms of how they view him and what they think he was doing like it was different places (laughs) but they keep coming back to it we keep coming back to him yeah. Like I could see this being put up today yeah. and, and shaking people up and, and, you know, it doesn't, there's nothing that puts it in a time or place. You could, you could make it today ish. Well, I guess they talk about the I war. would love to they see a femme director direct this who for sure there's got to have been somebody. has a take because I don't know that I have a take. Like, at the end of it, I was sort of like, I don't know that I'll ever direct this play because I don't know that I <laughs> would handle it with the correct gloves. Like, I don't I don't know. Mm-hmm. Like, I, 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 it told me a lot. I think it had me explore a lot of things that I think. But I would love to s- see it again. That's, that's mm-hmm. kind of where I'm at. Like, I watched the movie and that's it. So I would love to see it on stage. I would love to be a part of it. I don't think I, 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 I know what to do with it, though. Um, final thoughts on the homecoming besides, uh, that it's the best of the three Spider-Men, uh, Spider-Man <laughs> movies? I don't know. It is I the agree best with of that. The, which one, um, which one's your favorite? Honestly, I really like the first two a lot. I didn't hate 
three, but I like one and two better. Homecoming's the first one. Oh, sorry. I was thinking of the last one. Never coming. The last one's never, No Way, no way home. home. Harold goes, Pinter's Spider-Man goes, Homecoming. I, one and two Harold are tied for me. Harold Pinter's Spider-Man Homecoming. Edward Albee's Spider-Man Far From Home. <laughs> and um, Carol Churchill's Spider-Man No Way Scriker. Home. Um, <laughs> um, it's the Scriker 2 No Way Home. Yeah. Uh, one last thing I wanted to say that had nothing to do with our conversation, because we didn't talk about him a whole lot. Sam has a completely timeless monologue about why he's a chauffeur and people want to hire him. Oh, and yeah. it's because he would be the Lyft or Uber driver I would want. Yeah. Yeah. He's a nice guy. That's he's real. like, I don't talk. I just let them sit and relax. And I'm like, nothing's changed in that department. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you could use that monologue, I feel like, now. And people would, would be like, hi. Oh, yeah, Listen, let's make it today. And Sam's going to be an Uber driver. Okay. Uh, all right cool hey good times y'all thanks for uh thanks for hanging out with me for a little bit uh do you have any la spotlight uh i do uh i uh as have i i i'll as I've mentioned many times, I, we've been producing uh, How We Got On by Idris Goodwin, uh, directed by Jamie Robledo at the Sacred Fools Theater in Los Angeles, and we are extending. Hey! Uh, yeah, so um, get your tickets. Four more chances less, left as of the publication of this podcast. Nice. Thank you. Nice. Uh, get tickets for Anne at the Pasadena Playhouse. We open in a few weeks. It's going to be incredible. It's a one-woman show written and starring Holland, written by and starring Holland Taylor, who plays Anne Richards, the old governor of Texas. One of the uh, coolest women ever yes. in the history of the United And it is a good-ass play. Very I'm good. I'm really Highly excited to it. see it. Really excited. Highly recommend. Uh, so if you can make it to Pasadena, great. If not, watch it on Broadway HD, because it's on Broadway HD. Uh, okay. Good times. Siege, you got... Did you got one? Uh, next week, I will. I have too many things to do as a producer before then, before I can admit that we're opening. Uh, fair <laughs> enough. Yeah, fair enough. yeah it doesn't exist yet, but when it can, it will. Uh, and thank you all listening. CG, for why are you ripping us. out your oh. hair on the Zoom and, and crying? <laughs> oh my God. Her <laughs> Lord. Oh my God. <laughs> your ears are bleeding. Are you okay? It's probably bad, my guy. Is that um, vomit, is that vomit and poop on the floor behind you? <laughs> oh my God. Why isn't it your vomit or poop? Oh my God. <laughs> you missed the bucket. Okay. Um, uh, thank you for joining us <laughs> for part two of the birthday potty. Join us next week for part three in the finale of our Pinter mini series. And uh, then we have a Bailey pick and stuff. We're doing a bonus series inside of a bonus series. <laughs> All right. It's going to be Sound of Music Live starring Carrie Underwood. Oh, my Christ. Uh, Jesus. <laughs> it's better than you think. No, but it's, it's not. But it's, it's worse. Not. It's not. Than you want it to be. Yeah, right. it's it's it's. It's fine. There's things. Carrie's not good. Get on your later housing, y'all. It's fine. That's all I'm yeah. imagining. But we're going to watch it together, and then we're going to record right after, and we're going to have a blast. Uh, that's all I got. Do y'all have questions or comments? Uh, tell us what y'all think about Pinter or The Homecoming. You can email us. You can also reach us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. Scott? Thank you, CJ. A big shout out to Ryan Thomas Johnson for writing our theme song. Here's a truth. 
our theme song is better than your theme song. Wait, Analogy. let me check real quick. Let me let me see. Give me a, check uh, your notes. <laughs> that is true. That's true. It <laughs> That's says true. It's in the back. It's in the glossary of it's my textbook. Is there it is. <laughs> uh, Ryan also writes all of our stingers, and he's an amazing human being. Uh, another big shout out to Pamela Quinn who wrote Ooh. our Pinter-centric song, which you are about to hear. Yes, uh, she contributes to every episode. She's also a frequent guest with us, uh, and she's lovely and amazing. And then finally, to the great Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright Annie Baker for writing every single one of our episodes. And she does That was a really it. nice Pinter pause there. Thank you. Very Pinter. A little Pinter, Pinter Baker? Pinter yeah. Baker? Pinta. Pinta. Um, but uh, one day, Annie Baker, Girls? we're going to buy you a beer. Yeah. It's true. Hey, everyone, go right now. Take a second. Just right now. Just just stop. What, just, oh, oh, don't stop the podcast. Don't stop the podcast. Just subscribe. And, and then rate. Yes. And then review. Yes. That's all. That's all I need. Yes, I appreciate y'all. We love you guys so much. Mouths and butts are the same thing. Don't forget it. Talk to hey. you later. Let's find a rock, I mean a big ass rock, or maybe something like a cinder block is better. I'll hoist it up and drop it on your face, my buddy. And just before the lights go out, you'll see my smile and you'll know you've got a friend with a rock. Who cares? I mean a big ass rock or a rope. I got some quality rope. <laughs> Made for a man who's devoid of hope like you are. My Scotty, Scott boy. And I won't leave you swinging there, twitching like a fish while you claw the air. I'll grab your feet and pal of mine. I'll pull real hard and snap your spinal cord. Yikes. This world is cold when you're alone and they ignore you. But don't kill yourself. I'll do it for you. You've got a friend. This is a fucked up song in Dear Evan Hansen. It's from Dear Evan Hansen. It's a cut song from Dear Evan Hansen. It's a bad musical. It's from Full Monty. It's from Full Monty. Let's start off sweet. Let's start off neat. Come collected cool, so respected far from a fool, so innocent it only takes one argument. Then it's getting rough, the toughness is tough, the hedges grow knives, the room is our life.